Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. This is the place to learn how to get through your worst rock bottom and start to embrace adversity. I'm your host, Petra Belzebor. I'm a therapist and a life coach, but my biggest learning is from my own rock bottom. My story includes being raised in a cult, dealing with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism. But along the way, I've learned to turn my entire life around to one of success, joy, and fulfillment. So in this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life who've done the same. I'll be teasing out the skills and tools necessary, as well as using my own experience to teach you how to turn your adversity into your biggest advantage. What an immense story we've got for you today, filled with wisdom, a beautiful story of friendship, um, right back to the his- history that connects to uh, sort of growing up with Hell's Angels, Crips, Bloods, getting robbed every day, um, and some real wisdom. I, I, I got a little bit nervous because I thought we were going to go to the religious space, and if anyone knows or has had an upbringing similar to mine, where religion has played a big part, my heckles went up a little bit, and you can hear that in my voice a couple times. But I needn't have worried because um, really Abraham is so sincere, so purposeful, and his mission is to make the world a pleasure to do business with. Stay tuned right till the end where he offers some complimentary uh, spaces on a CX Success Summit online. Enjoy this one. Welcome, everyone, once again to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm so excited. All the way from Israel, we've got Abraham Venismach. Have I said that correctly? Ooh, you got it right. <laughs> Did I? Close enough. Okay, thanks for the little tutorial earlier. Yeah, perfect. Actually, the, the last name, my, that's not my original name. Okay. I made it, I made, I made it all up. Oh, creative. Yeah, the whole thing. My name, my name here in Israel is Abraham Shachar Venismach. That would have been but harder for me to say. Is, <laughs> but my, but my original name is this one is easy for you to say: Stephen Howard Tanchuk. So maybe if somebody hears this, they're going to flip out, go on. <laughs> That's what happened to him. He's, he switched everything <laughs> I up. The aliens got hold of him. <laughs> What's that? So, so now we've got to so know I, the story of why this happened. There you go, right? Well, you know, it's uh, it, it was a long dream of mine. It was well since I was eighteen years old. I visited Israel, and uh, it was a very interesting thing that happened to me, where mo- which motivated me to go to Israel. Um, when I was I was seventeen years old, I was sitting on this park bench. It was a beautiful summer evening, and I was looking at the stars, and I don't know what. I don't know what possessed me, you know, but I started to think about Israel. And, you know, obviously, I, you know, well, maybe not obviously, you don't know me, but I'm, I'm, uh, we spoke about earlier from the Jewish nation. And the reason I say nation is because we're really not a religion. We are, uh, we are an exiled nation that's finally got our country back. And so it's just the same as if God forbid something should happen and somebody took over the United States then uh, what would happen is that they would, the people, the great American people that were left over that managed to get away would take the flag down, you know, because the flag's real important, you know, and then I know that they got that whole thing going on over there with people kneeling, which I think is really disgusting. It's a bit over the top. Yeah, it's, well, the thing, when I grew up. So where where did you grow up? 
I grew up in Venice, California. Okay. Where the debris meets the sea. Got so it. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a beautiful place. I loved it there. And uh, so the uh, uh, but when I grew up, you know, we used to do the Pledge of Allegiance, and the flag was very important. And we were taught that if the flag ever touched the ground, you have to burn it. You know, uh, we would go to war over the flag. I remember when 9-11 happened, uh, you couldn't even buy an American flag. You remember that? Mm, yeah. I was, in, was I was in Kenya at the time when all that happened. Oh, okay. So, yeah, over here, I mean, over here, over there in the States, um, you couldn't buy an American flag. I mean, it was, it was, the pride was there. People were showing in their, 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 uh, Nas- pride nationalism. Country. Yeah. And nationalism. And, you know, we were, we were upset about it and, and everyone was very proud. And to see these people here that, you know, there's lots of ways of protesting, but, you know, and for an American, that's, the flag is very important. You know, it represents, you know, our nation, the people who died for our nation. Maybe if those people understood what the symbolism of the flag was, they would stand instead of kneel, uh, and they would find another way to protest. And uh, anyway. So, um, so this, this gives us a little bit of a picture of just the, the context of, of what it was like for you growing up. What was the, um, the education system like, your, your parents, your family sort of network? Um, how did they prepare you maybe for the, for the real world? Oh, man, I was, uh, you know, it was, uh, I got an education at, uh, <laughs> at you know, through the, the LA, LA Unified School District. And, you know, it was, I grew up in a pretty tough area with Venice at the full of gangs, um, Hells Angels and you know, uh, Crips, Bloods, B-13, I, it was it was tough, you know. Going to grammar school was good, but when we got to uh, when we got to uh, junior high, then it was very dangerous. And there was riots, and uh, we were getting robbed every day. And uh, it was really uh, it was something. It was. I remember I was kind of a piece of work when I was a kid. What does because, that mean? Well, <laughs> the. Uh, I came late in the family, so you know my parents were, you know, practical people. Didn't see any reason to buy any clothes. They had all these great hand-me-downs, right? Right. How many kids yeah. were there? Well, there was, there was. I have two older brothers, so <laughs> so I was like twelve and fifteen years difference, and saw the cousins and the you know my brothers. Now these great clothes. Now these were clothes from the fifties. Now today these would be very cool clothes. Of course. But you know, in the sixties and seventies. They were not cool clothes. They were pretty goofy. And I had to wear those clothes. So uh, needless to say, you know, I was kind of sort of stuck out like a sore thumb. But, you know, I have good friends. They, don't, they, they didn't care. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, but it's actually saved me. Yeah, how? Well, it was, uh, I went to school and, uh, you know, they were robbing us every day. And my mother of blessed memory was a, one of the original health nuts. This is before the health nuts were around. Mm-hmm. Well, my mom was, she was the brown paper bag and, the, you know, the, the uh, whole wheat, you know, the sprouts and no dessert, get an apple for dessert, no lunch money. Right. But that's what they were robbing us of, of our lunch money. Right. So, and I had like, even, you know, it was, that was a time around my bar mitzvah too. So you know, my parents bought me these, a suit, I had a suit, the suit shoes and, 
I was wondering when school started when I was going to get my regular shoes, but they said, you know, those are your shoes. <laughs> what do you mean? Those are my shoes. <laughs> These suit shoes. Right? It's those are expensive and good shoes. You're going to wear those shoes. And I'm like, oh man. Now picture that with, with these hand-me-down clothes from the 50s, right, in the 70s, and the suit right? And then don't forget the brown bag and then, you know, the health lunch and the, the you know, the no... You were, set, you were set up for life. <laughs> I was. So when they came and they used to line us up, right? We had the shoreline Crips used to, I remember they had this little whistle and this whole thing and the symbolism and they had like this glove that they rolled over on one hand and they go, okay, white boys, line up. Let's start with a dime. And then, you know, so they, they would start stealing everybody's lunch money. And then every time they got to me, I just stuck my, you know, took my pockets out. And so they saw, all I had was lint. And, you know, they'd go by, they'd leave me alone. After a while, you know, they see the same story. And one of them stops by and he looks at me up and down. He goes, man, is this boy ain't even got no Twinkie. Every day come, no money, no Twinkie. Man, somebody get this boy a Twinkie, man. And then they, so they robbed somebody else's lunch and gave him a Twinkie. <laughs> <laughs> so it saved you. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, then they were my friends, right? They're like, go, hey, what's up, homie? You know, they're like. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that, you know, that whole thing saved me. And, you know, it wasn't until I got into, you know, high school, I started to become cool. Right. You know, that was that was actually my goal in life was to become cool because I was such a goofball. In, yeah, of course. In, did did you? Needed, were yeah. there already sort of aspirations or expectations from family or from yourself about you know things that you wanted to do when you were older, or was it just sort of survival and and be as cool as possible to survive? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think I was even on a level of to even think like that. Right. It was, just, <laughs> it, it was like we had you know we had our friends and. And uh, my friend, in fact, the my best friend was he. It was like opposites, right? He was the best looking guy in school, and he was voted the best looking guy. And I was the goofiest looking guy in school, right? I wasn't voted for anything, but you know, I was probably just too goofy to vote for in the first place, right? <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> but was really cool about my friend. We grew up together. Is that you think you know how in those movies when the guy becomes really cool and he's got his goofy friend and they he doesn't want anything to do with him anymore? Oh yeah. Well, my friend wasn't like that. He was my real friend, you know. He would always make sure I was invited to the parties so all the cool things were going on. He'd say, uh, uh, um, you know, who's this? Who's you know, who you, why are you bringing him for? And he looked at the people and says, What are you talking about? It's my friend. Because if he ain't going in, I'm not going in. You know, of course, he's the cool one of those guys in school, and they're like, "Well, come on in," you know. And we go to these parties and stuff. So, you know, it was you know, so it was. I thought it was very, you know, I admired that about him. You know, uh, years later, you know, he ended up passing away before he was uh, um, forty, uh, and he had uh, some severe, severe problems, mental problems, and he was homeless, and you know, he really. It was a whole thing, and so you know, I took him in, and you know, he and uh, he finally, you know, he didn't really have anybody but me, and but I took him in, and I remember when we, when he passed away, because he, he he lost the will to live. Uh, it was uh, you know, mainly chemical, and he just you know ended up, you know, I mean he 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 was in jail, and there was all this different stuff that happened to him, and. I get a phone call one day 
because I was the only number he had. And, and they said, you know, you know, Kevin Smith. And I said, uh, yeah. And he says, well, he, he has your number here. He passed away. And so, so what, was, right. what was that like for you? Well, it was kind of a one side. I'm sorry to say it was a little bit of a relief because he was really getting pretty out of hand. You yeah, know, he, he tried was... to kill me once. Oh, right. then, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't really afraid of it because, you know, I understood it was coming from a mental illness and he didn't really mean it. And Yeah, he was deeply know. unhappy. And, well, it was beyond deeply unhappy. It was just, you know, it chemically couldn't, there was nothing you could do, you know, I mean. Fortunately, when a person gets into, you know, as a chemical uh, reaction like that, you know, in their brain, their brain tells them these things because he was hallucinating and having all kinds of, you know, uh, um, what do you call it? You know, uh, you know, he's hearing voices and everything. He was really he was mentally ill. And like you can, you know, people try to, and I didn't know anything about it. I was trying to talk about it, but I learned later in life after some other experiences with some people that, you know, trying to, you know, tell a person who's mentally ill to snap out of it or somebody who's, you know, depressed, you know, clinically depressed, snap out. It's like telling somebody with no legs to run a marathon. It's just like, excuse me, but do you see I don't have any legs here? This is yeah. not anytime soon. So yeah. he he ended up, you know, just it just it got so bad that he just lost the will to live and passed away. And um, I remember this funeral. And I got up to speak, and you know it was over over there, and and I just said, "Look, you know, he was always my friend." I said, "It's kind of an emotional thing for me." It's a, he said, uh, <clears throat> and I told the story about when we were kids, and how he was always my friend. You know, even in, you know, when I was the goofiest kid around and he still, he, he never saw that. He only saw me as his friend. And then, uh, so I, I said, you know, that it was my turn to be his friend. No one else wanted to be his friend, you know, because of his mental illness and, you know, all the things like that. I says, but, but I wanted to be his friend, you know, because, because I said, because I am his friend. Yeah, we put him, you know, we put him to rest. And that was that was Kev. But anyway, so moving on, you know, moving on into high school, the uh well, um, well, let me just I want to pause you cuz I I'm I'm feeling emotional just hearing this story and I'm wondering what what would you say the impact uh that Kevin had on your life? <laughs> he was one that got me into all the trouble. <laughs> 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 I was moving right along. I was this nice boy. And, <laughs> and, then, and then I started getting, you know, we started getting into all the, you know, the recreational type of things, you know. And then uh, he was the main instigator. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so uh, we had a lot of fun. You know, we did a lot of things, you know, dirt bike riding and surfing and uh, camping. You know, we really enjoyed, you know, life, I mean, skiing, just all kinds of, you know, just the whole, you know, enjoy life thing. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, so, you know, even like I said, when I finally got into high school and I was, I got started to do, started to work and make my own money so I could buy my own clothes, you know, I started to get cool, yeah. you know, at least, I, you know, I thought, 
And my goal was to sit because where I was, the cool guys were up on the top bleachers. They would sit up there and kind of sort of, you know, look down at everybody. And I thought one day I'm going to be up there like that. And I suppose that's one of my first goals in life, right? Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> to, to the top bleachers, right? When I, when I finally got there, I realized that these were just burned out on drug guys. And the reason they were they seemed cool is because they were just completely out of their minds. And whenever you spoke to them, they didn't have much to say because they were too busy, you know, burning their brain cells out. Sure. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was like, these guys are basically jerks. Right. So you saw it for and, what it was. Yeah. Well, I got it. Sometimes you got to get there to, you know, to understand it. So so I saw this, you know, one of those goofy looking dudes. I remember he had the little pen, you know, pocket protector, got his books and he tripped over and books fell. One of those classic scenes and all the cool guys were laughing at him and I didn't laugh. So I looked it down and I said, you know what? That's the cool dude. I said, I looked at these guys and I said, you guys are a, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads, man. I said, that guy down there, I says, he is the coolest of all. Look at him. You know, he's working hard and he's trying to learn. I says, you know, 20 years from now, you're going to be working for a guy like that. That's it, right? Yeah. So he's the guy that you want to be like. I, I don't want to be like you guys, man. And I just, the, mo- the day I got there is the day I left. Mm, that's good learning. Yeah. You know, and from then on, I understood what cool really was. And, you know, I went from that on to to because I was I had to I had to leave the the country because it was getting too out of hand, everything. And I needed to go away that I I decided, you know, because I had this kind of sort of thought why Israel popped up. I don't know. It just sort of popped up. When you were 17. Yeah. Just thinking about things and life and stuff. you know, and I thought, you know, there's something going on over there. Maybe I got to go check it out. And I need to get away from here because I'm around people. I, it's just not, not you know, the kind of people I want to be hanging out with now. I want to go and change my life. So so you left. Yeah. And your parents were, were behind this? Your family? Yeah. Well, my parents are always very supportive of anything I did. You know, they said, as long as you're happy, we're happy. So... So, uh, you know, I, I looked into it myself and I had a friend that was supposed to go with me and then he bagged out in the end. And I just said, okay, you know, I've never been out of the state of California. I think maybe once to Nevada. And, uh, you know, I figured we always wanted to do something like that. And I figured, well, you know, I, I hated high school. You know, I hated school with a passion. <clears throat> and I said, I, I'm going to go. I'm going to go do this. I, I flew over here to Israel and the first day was really scary. You know, I wanted to, I was so funny because this is back before the, uh, the emails, you know, and this is when you had to actually send a postcard and stuff, you know, write letters, <laughs> you know, and then you had to, and making phone calls was really expensive. So, <laughs> so I get over there. I remember getting over there. I land and, you know, I've got I way overpacked and, you know, this is how I learned not, not to overpack. Uh, and did you have relatives over there? Were you were you going to meet people? Just like I tell everybody, everybody and nobody, right? Because it's all a you know Jewish nation, and you know, so everybody's we're all kind of related that way, but nobody. Yeah, yeah. So, 
it's like, you know, but I, was, I, I remember getting there and, and, oh, man, I was just terrified. I saw, you know, people at that time driving crazy and, you know, uh, there was people walking around with guns and machine guns. And, it's a different world. Yeah, I was, I was so scared. And, and uh, I, I remember I was crying. I got, you know, st- sat down somewhere and I started crying and, and, I, and I started to my mom telling her I'm coming right home. <laughs> it's a funny thing because, you know, I'm ready to go on the plane already, go back to the plane and get back, you know, get out of there. But I'm writing this letter to my mom. And I told myself, look, you know, just get a night's rest. You're tired, you know, and then see how you feel in the morning. So, you know, and then if you feel you want to go home, then go home. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I got that night's rest and I woke up, I felt better. And I went to the office that was to assign me where I was going to go be, where I was going to go to a place called a kibbutz, which is a like a communal farm. Yeah. And uh, and uh, so it was up in the north of Israel, which is real pretty. And then the bus ride that I took was along the coast. And once I got out, it was in Tel Aviv. Once I got to Tel Aviv, I was like, wow, this feels so good. I feel really good here. And so you and just I had start- to stick it out, and then you felt better. Yeah. All of a sudden, I fell in love with the country. And and uh, and I wanted to move there, so uh, I went I went back to the states after you know some months I think like seven months to go get my stuff together and I made a really good friend that he and I were going to go in business together and so we went you know I went back to get it together and then something happened to him he was doing my old job which we were I was, we were working around the yard you know keeping the the kibbutz nights, and one of the jobs was, was like poison pigeons that were like on top of the cow barn or something. Right? And he was on top of the cow barn, and he was putting up the poison. And then the, the he went to a, a, a weak spot on the roof, and he fell through and broke his back and became paralyzed. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So how life can change of, in in a minute? Oh, I've seen it more than once, and I'm sure you have too. So I had, uh, um, I decided, you know, you know well, the sort of my plans kind of went out the door that one, and and I got back used to being in the states, and I just started sort of doing that whole thing with the backpack and traveling around the world thing. So and it was, I had a great time doing that, and forgot my dream. You know, I was busy, you know, back in the states and just enjoying all the things there, and like I said, I went through. I went all through Europe, and I went through Mexico, Central America, you know. Uh, you learn a lot uh, about yourself through traveling. Yeah, I was having a blast, you know. In fact, I even had uh, one where I was, uh, I was in Guatemala, and, and uh, we got ambushed by the, the uh, bandits over there. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> yeah, it was, but we knew about them. <clears throat> it was very funny. We were in the jungles up north in Guatemala and where the pyramids and everything are, Tikal. Yeah. And we met these Israelis over there, and because they usually take a year off after the army to travel around the world, and they told us it was really worth. Because I met some friends. Um, as you travel, you're always meeting people. Yeah. So I was traveling with these these people, and one of them happened to be Israeli, and they were telling us about this this beautiful volcano in Guatemala that you can go up to and check it out. It was like an active volcano. But there was some bandits that were in the bushes over there. They're really nice bandits. You know, they they would steal everything but your bus money. <laughs> how, how nice of them! <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. So I made a mental note that I'm not going there. Yeah. 
you know, but no thanks. But you know, the Israeli guys are kind of crazy. So we get we get over there to uh uh <laughs> to Guatemala City. He wants to go. So I'm like, great, have a great time, man. Send me a postcard. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, no, you don't understand. And I remember there's another guy, a Dutch guy with him. And um, so you don't understand. So we understand what? This is banditos they got over there. They got guns. You know, um, you know, you steal everything but your bus money. I, I, that's, I'll keep everything and my bus money. Right? <laughs> if you don't mind, thank you. <laughs> yeah, go right ahead. But you're the only one who speaks Spanish. And, you know, I'm like, I don't care. So, you know, what's, you need to know how to speak when they tell you to put your hands up, right? <laughs> you know? I don't know. They talked me into it. Oh, they did. <laughs> so, <yeah>. Eventually, <laughs> the adventure caught on. Yeah. So, so, I don't know. I'm over there the whole time. We had to cl- cl- this. There was this like mountain that we had to like scrape our way up, you know, to get to this thing. And then I see people running down these bandits, bandidos, you know, run away, you know. So I'm like, Great. I'm already turned around, run away. And really, where are you going? He says, look, they told us they were nice. We'll tie all of our stuff over here. We'll just take the bus money with us. So they'll just, he said, you know, they won't steal. We don't have anything for them to steal, right? So I'm like, no way, man. You're on your own. He's no, oh, but you don't want to speak Spanish, right? I was like, he talked me into it. So, so for every step that they took, I took a half a step. Because so I figured, let's see what happens to them, right? <laughs> 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 the survival you still got that survival instinct from like school <laughs> no I, I part of when i traveled i always brought steel toe steel toe boots you know so there was the you know you know 12 pounds of pressure will break the knee so i had this thing called the three knee technique which was was the right you you kick them in the right knee the left knee and then that other thing called the knee got you so <laughs> <laughs> and then you run away, right? Of so, so I got uh, uh, you know, I see all of a sudden there's like a machete, a couple of machetes going through the brush, you know, like a shark fin. Yeah. And and uh, sure enough, they were captured, and they had guns and things, and you know, I'm, I I was at the spot where I was, I was kind of at the peak where all I had to do was turn around and run away, and no problem, and and. So the Israeli guy screaming and the Dutch guy screaming, come, you got to get us out of here. They don't speak Spanish. Help us. You know, I don't know what got into me, but I, I felt I couldn't leave them. Sure. So, so I, I, uh, I walked down with my hands up and, uh, you know, now I've got a gun to my head and a machete to my throat. And, 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 <laughs> and the only thing I could see this guy was his gun was, he was shaking and his bloodshot eyes, he had a mask on. It was like typical out of the movie kind of thing. And and all he, he says to me, Dinero, money. <laughs> yeah. So, right. So I just look at him and I'm I go, Hey, good morning, buenos dias, you know, good morning. You know, I was like, We're just poor travelers, we don't have any money in this <laughs> really kind of Dutch guy. They're like, No money, no money, no <laughs> dinero, you know, no look, only bus money, right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, so I I come up with a story. I says, "Look, you know, you guys are wasting your time with us. I saw some tourists. They got like gold watches, and you know, they got you know diamond necklaces. They got lots of money, and they're coming up here. 
I said, you know, if they see you with us, you're wasting your time. So you go hide now. They'll come up. You can rob them. And, you know, we'll be gone already. So how's that sound? <laughs> they're like, yeah, great. You know, so they're. Don't tell so me they, this worked. This tactic worked. <laughs> it did, right? So, you know, so they're getting all, you know, they talk to each other. Oh, we got to get the money. This guy with the gold watches, you know. So anyway, the Israeli and the Dutch guy don't know what I'm saying. No. And they just see the guys, you know, getting excited and ready to run away. So I had some. It's called chutzpah in, in the Hebrew. I mean, uh, I have a, a. I had a lot of nerve at this point. Yeah. I was, I was, I was feeling my oats, and I said, "Wait a minute," you know. I, I, <laughs> so the guys turn around with the banditos and come back here. <laughs> like they come back, yes. I'm like the the, the, the uh, Israeli. Script, what are you doing? Let's yeah. get out of here. Minute, man, I gotta ask them a question. So there's like, what do you? Ask us, can you tell us the best way to get to the volcano? <laughs> that just sounds insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they, they're like, in a hurry, yeah, sure, just go that way. Out of the first, go that way. They get lost. Just go up that way. <laughs> now we gotta go. They're gone. Back in the bushes, hiding. Right? So now I'm like. Okay, let's get out of here, right? So I, I we're on our way out. And the Israeli guy, what'd you say to them? So I told him, I told him, there's no other person. I said, I know. He said, oh, they're going to be mad when they find out. I said, but we're going to be gone by the time, you know, they figure it out. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, so we, we hike up to go look at this volcano. And on the way, we see there's this guy with these binoculars sitting there. And he looks at us, he says, I was watching this whole thing go down. Because I don't know what this guy's like, his hobby watching this. <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> and he says, What'd you do? I've never seen that before. I said, uh, you know, I told him, he goes, Oh, they're going to be mad. <laughs> 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 so, man, you know, we get to the top of the volcano, and I'm figuring, I'm, I'm picturing like this whole thing full of lava. You know, big giant, you know, it's just like this little teeny hole with a little bit of lava. Yeah. I look at these guys and go, that's it? Yeah. I said, we almost die getting here, and, and this is what you bring me to? Man, let's get out of here. Yeah. So, when these guys figure out what happened. So we managed to get back safely. So that was the... uh that was the, that story. Yeah. So, but, so I've had yeah. A, I have a feeling that I could hear these sorts of exciting stories for like the next five days. It feels like your <laughs> life is that rich and has so much in it. So, so, so I need to like refocus. Um, you're giving me loads of themes on, around adversity and, um, you, you know, sort of challenges coming your way. And I just love your, your kind of humor, your nerve, your like, uh, you know, get up and go to just get sort of through these things. Um, now, of all the, the adversity or the challenges that you faced, what, like what would you say maybe was your, your lowest point in life? I, that one I won't go into because it was just too low, you know, but I can tell you the outcome. Lovely. Of, yeah, whatever yeah. you're comfortable with. What, what, what would yeah. you say sort of went on for you? Well... You know, it, 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 perhaps I'll, I'll just, exp I won't go into the details of it, but I'll just tell you what the outcome of it was. Yeah, you great. Know? They got to a point in my life where everything seemed to be going wrong. This is probably, people can relate to this for sure. Yeah. 
uh, you know, so I did a, a an accounting of my, like we call it in Hebrew, cheshbon and nefesh, which means accounting of the soul. Uh, and so, you know, when I was a kid, those we when you're a traditional Jewish kid in the states, at least when I was growing up, but you know, you you they sent you this thing called Hebrew school after school. So I don't know any of you Jewish people out there that probably can relate to this, where you're wondering what am I doing here, and you know how come all my 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 Goyesha friends, my non-Jewish friends yeah. get to play, and I got to be at the school like three times a week, right after school. Yeah, my parents, my parents. You said that I needed to go because I got to get ready for my bar mitzvah. And I had no idea, you know, I knew about, you know, bar mitzvah and we're Jewish and all this stuff, but, you know, I didn't know about the school thing, right? And then, so, you know, the rabbi over there was, you know, all the time made us write this note on there telling us the best path, you know, for a Jew is Torah and mitzvot, means that they were supposed to follow a certain guideline. And, uh, you know, I was like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know. And um, but he made us say it and write it. And this went on for years, right? This kind of came out my ears, right? And But it never really meant anything to me. You know, it was just another boring thing to do, right? Yeah, but like a we, tradition. Yeah, I was like, you know, what is this guy, right? What's with this? So when I hit my low point, you know, and, and it was like... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I'll say one part of it is that with the business was, I was like $70,000 in the red and, uh, you know, and everything was like falling apart and I was just sitting, I remember sitting there and, and, uh, thinking about all my friends and myself and, well, this one was dead and this one was in jail and this one was doing okay. And, you know, and I, where are you? And, you know, I said, and all of a sudden, that voice, that rabbi, comes into my mind after all those years with that thing that I had to write down all the time. Yeah. And like, the best path for a Jew is Torah and mitzvot. <clears throat> I said, I have no idea what that means. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't even know why he's in my head. <clears throat> but, you know, this is a time maybe it means something, but I really don't understand it. So I figured, well, maybe I'll go find a rabbi and ask him, you know. And then in my community that I was living in, in the neighborhood, that was a local Jewish community. And I uh, uh, went to inquire if I speak with the rabbi over there. You know, usually a lot of people, when they hit a low point, they might go to clergy. Yeah. And, you know, and so I did. That's what I did. I went to the clergy. And then I said, told them my story. And I told them what happened, you know, and all the different things. And... <clears throat> He said to me, he just smiled and he says, you know, you just have the wrong set of information. And I'm like, what information? What do you mean information? And he says, you know, tonight I have a, a class. You know, just especially for, you know, people who, uh, you know, don't know much. You can come. He says, you know, it's free and, and we're happy to have anybody who would like to come. Can I invite you to come? I figured, oh, what I got to lose, you know. Yeah, I wasn't so much into it because I figured, oh, this religious stuff's not for me, right? You know, I'm just uh, yeah, I don't really understand any of it. it doesn't make any sense, you know. How, so, can I, I just ask how how old were you at this point with this sort of low point and turning to religion 30. in a way? Thirty. Okay. So, so I said, uh, um, so I go there, you know, and he tells this amazing story 
about this cobbler. And I never heard that story like this, you know, and how this cobbler, every customer that came to him to get some shoes, that every stitch that he took, he would think about the customer and, you know, how important it was that the shoes would be good for the customer. And, you know, he'd say, listen, Mr. Goldstein, he's a door-to-door salesman, and, you know, he really needs to be on his feet all the time, and he, you know, he's feeding his family, and, you know, these shoes, he depends on them, so I need to make them extra strong. And then we have Mr. Smith, who's a butcher, and, you know, he's working hard all day on his feet, and, you know, I need to make very comfortable shoes, you know, so he can work, you know, and they need to be sturdy, and every stitch he takes, you know, so went through this, all these different kinds of scenarios, and, and how that the, the, uh, uh, the cobbler would only think about the customer's needs. Yeah. Well, this to me was like a revelation. Why? Because I grew up with a World War II depression baby father, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was a tough guy. Those guys from that era were tough guys. And they're, they were the my way or the highway generation. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, they, they, you know, their idea of like customer service and stuff was, if you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. Yes. there'll be another five more customers to come and then they're not afraid to get physical either. You know, yeah. they get into an argument, you know, but that's how I thought you ran business. So this is how we ended up in $70,000 in the red was because, you know, I, my father, my brothers left the business. It was just myself and my father. And my father decided he wanted me to run the business. So I ran it like he ran it. And I just about ran it into the ground. Right. Yeah. Had no experience whatsoever. Well, interestingly enough, because of this new so-called new information that I was starting to receive as I started to continue to go to those classes and learn more things. And I was like, wow, that's different. So, you know, I'd come to work with my newfound attitude that, you know, I'm just going to think about what's good for the customer. Now we had 20 people working for us and we were just down to my father, this one worker, myself, the recession you know, hit real hard and we're, you know, in bad shape. So we had a 4,200 square foot building and full of equipment, screen printing and engraving and all kinds of stuff, but there was no work. Well, one day a guy comes walking through the door, and uh, I'm ready for, I'm eagerly waiting to apply my new skill. Yeah. And he says, Listen, can you know, I have a little plate that I would like to have done here engraved. Can you do it for me? I said, Absolutely. I'd be delighted to. Well, I should say lighted to. The English language is a funny language. You say you're delighted. It's like taking light away, right? <laughs> so I was, <laughs> I said, I'd be delighted to help you, right? Yeah. So, so I said, so he comes with me and I do the little plate. And he's like, oh, that's beautiful. Because I, I practice this. I'm going to make this plate. I'm sure it's important to him. I'm going to make every letter beautiful. You know, it's going to, you know, so when he goes gives this plate, you know, they're going to, you know, appreciate it. Cause you know, I went through this whole mental thing. Right. Yeah. And so then it was like time for me to tell him how much it was. It's almost $5. And he looks at me and goes, $5. No, no. He says, let me give you $20. I said, no, no, please. Only five. And he said, uh, no, I, I, you, you took it. You did it right now. You did such a nice job. I would like to give you 20. I said, no, sir. I said, my minimum order is only $5. So if you, you just, you know, I'll take the five, but if, you know, if there is something you'd like to do for me, he says, sure, sure, anything. I said, just please tell other people about the service you received here. Oh, I love that. And, and uh, you know, uh, this is how that I would, I, that's all I asked. So absolutely, I will do that. Yeah. 
hour later, I get a phone call from him. He says, look, my son-in-law was looking for a new screen printer. And I told him of the experience I had at your place and that, you know, uh, I suggested he give you a try. So I really appreciate that, sir. So I'll, you know, he says, can you come over? I need it. He needs it right away. Absolutely. I came over. And that whole thing turned into $750,000 worth of business. Wow. Yeah. So we went from 70000 in the red to 90000 in the black. Within, you know, within about three years. Sure. So, and all because, it, and it wasn't just you, you would have had to get employees, you would have had to kind of shift the culture of your organization. Yeah, exactly. So this kind of set me into a mindset where, you know, there was, as we, this client, you know, actually came to me for some advice on, they were having problems with their customer experience, customer service. And they uh, wanted to know if we could make a special award that would help them because at the time they were they were the largest home builder in the United States, and at the time they they had uh, a problem with their customer service of only sixty five percent of their customers were happy, which is which is, is a disaster. And so you know they asked if I could do something. So we came up with this cool little little award. It was like the Golden Hammer, Golden Nail Award, and had we went to Home Depot, give Home Depot a plug here. And then we got the, uh, we spray painted little nails gold and made these little blocks and laser engraved and put some holes. Every time somebody received a mention, they got this little golden nail to put in their block and they're, they're going crazy for these things. They started having nail parties and the CEO would fly in special to give out nails and hammer them in for employees. And yeah, it was really nice. And within three years, they went, you know, the customer satisfaction went to 95% and some divisions reporting 100%. And the employee turnover went down to single digits, which you could imagine with 4,000 employees. That's pretty incredible. Well, that's what kind of led me to, to getting out of, to coming to Israel. I figured, well, maybe it was, it was a time when I decided that I have to go live my dream. You know, we had a you know, flourishing business and I was working with my dad. <laughs> and, but there was the lingering dream, right? Yeah, and that I, that I, you know, it, it came back to me after I received the invitation to come to a friend about twenty years later, <clears throat> after my first visit, where I wanted to come and live in Israel. I received an invitation from a friend who invited me to come to his wedding in Israel, and I figured, why not? So I flew out, and the moment I came back to Israel, I remembered my dream. It's like a flashback, and I said, you know. I'm going to figure out how to live this dream. And every year I'm going to come back to Israel for vacation until I figure out how I'm going to live here. <laughs> well, it took about five years and it just happened. You know, the circumstances happened. I came to my dad and I said, look, I got to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. He didn't like the idea at first, but what could he do? Right. Right. You were and, determined. Yeah. I was just, well, that's it. You know, the key to anything in life is your, is your will. You know, that's what like, we have. God gave us these uh, our superpowers, and two of which are our will and our imagination, and the, and they're both very connected uh, to each other. You know, you need to have have both intact, and you need to be able to to connect to your will and then connect to your imagination, and on then you know, on top of that, you want to instill it with as good value, good information. So yeah. your your imagination are 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 are. are together in a nice and pure way so so what let me, so the, let me just pause you what what advice yeah. would you give to somebody whose whose will and imagination 
you know, feel really hard to, to reach due to sort of being at a low point in their life? Well, you got, you, you, the first thing is, is this, is it, you know, I'll, I'll give it in a little story because I, I work here for a pre-military academy as well. And I work with boys that come from overseas that they want to join the Israeli army. And, uh, you know, they don't have any family or friends or, you know, they're just coming because they, they themselves have their dream and they're following. So I see this all the time. So one boy once comes to me and he's saying that, well, he says he's having trouble believing in God. And I told him, that's nothing. <laughs> he looks at me and he says, what? How could you say something like that? Said, yeah, believing God, that's easy. He says, what do you mean? I said, let me ask you a question. I said, do you believe in yourself? He kind of looked down, you know, a little sad. And he said, I really don't. I said, so what are you worried about believing in God for? I said, you know, why don't you start by believing in yourself? I said, then you'll understand that God believes in you too. I said, but the first thing you need to do is you need to really believe in yourself. So he came up with this. I don't know how he came up with this, <laughs> what he told me, but he liked to work on cars. And he said, you know, if I made a car, I would believe in it. He says, you know, God made me, so God must believe in me. He says, you know, so I got to believe in myself. I says, that's right. Now go back, you know, because it's a, an academy for that kind of learning. And I said, uh, you know, so I'll go back, learn, you know, I says, you got it right. I says, but the most important thing I would say to people, the first thing you need to do is you need to believe in yourself. Now, the question is, is that if you might be you're on the ground and you're really having a difficult time and you're looking around and you're saying, well, no one else believes in me and, and or, you know, everything I've done is just a complete failure. And then, you know, I feel I have no value in this world. And I've been there. Believe me. Yeah. You know, I, I've been there. You know, I really thought I had no value in the world. And, you know, I thought I had nothing to offer the world. I, I thought I was the most useless person on earth. And, you know, but, you know, uh, you see that something will happen, you know, that'll help you. In my case, I, I called a friend when I was at such a such a low point. I called a friend that I haven't spoken to in 15 years. It's just some intuition told me to find him and call him. And I called him, and, and everything I told bad about myself, he told me, he says, oh, I'm so happy to hear from you. And now I was just thinking about you. It's after 15 years. Yeah. He says, you were one of the people that I met in my life that I really thought was such a worthwhile person. Just what you needed to hear at the time. Yeah. You know, and he, and he uh, started everything I said negative about myself. He, he just rattled on positive. You know, so... I was able, you know, able to take that and, and, and say, okay, you know, let's, let's get back up, you know? So other times I've been in situations where, you know, I, I thought that it was, I couldn't move anymore. You know, I was it. I, I did everything I possibly could do and no one could help me. You ever been like that? Oh my God. I certainly have. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Frozen, stuck depressed, yeah. low self-worth, right. feeling like there's right. no way out and nobody could possibly understand what I was going through. Right. Or, or even not only that, but there's no one else, there's nothing anybody can do about no. it. No. If you win, I understand. Yes, I understand your situation. 
and and that's <laughs> yeah. it. and that's it you must stay yeah. there <laughs> like, so i don't know i you know you know i believe in god yeah and so I, I would cry out to god and tell him look i just can't move i'm stuck i just don't i can't go any further that's it i'm done yeah right and Something would happen that I would get some kind of a relief of something to help me to move again. And I think there's so, something, whether whether it's God, whether it's friends, whether it's the universe, whatever somebody believes in, it's kind of the act of, of uh, giving in or letting go or asking for help in some way that can be that first sort of step to moving you forward. I, I, you're right. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an aspect of absolute humility. Yeah. You realize that, that you're done. You're just finishing. Now, never, I've never, you know, you never get to a point to where, God forbid, you would want to take your life. I know people get to that level, and some people, chemically, that's what happens to them. And, then, you know, it's unfortunate, but what, yeah. it's not fault. You know, the, it just happened like that. But, you know, for most people that get into these situations and even feel like they want to die, you know, there's, it's like, like, you know, when we were speaking earlier, you said something about, hell, what was it, the hell? How did you turn that? Yeah. You know, I turned um, it around. Yeah. How the hell did you get through it? I think I said. Right. So, so, you know, I like to turn those kinds of statements around. So, like, how the heaven did I get through it? Or, yeah. like, I'm dying to meet you, or I'm dying for something. So I, I, I change it. I say, I'm living to meet you, and I'm living for whatever that thing is, right? I love so, that because there, there is something powerful about language and how we condition ourselves through language. Exactly. Like, for example, word I'm delighted to should be happy to meet you, you know? So it's, it's, it's the opposite of, you know, when you, but it's, it's an ideology, it's a thought process of that you're looking at the world and you're picking out all these negative statements and you're turning them around to positive statements. We take it for granted, for example, these things like, you know, uh, how the hell did you get out of that? Or, you know, you know, those are really bad statements. You know, I heard it once say that, from a, this one very wise rabbi said that sticks and stones will only break my bones, but words will really hurt me. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're the things that stick with us and they become our inner dialogue or kind of harsh critic that, you know, we can be the, the worst offenders of. Yeah, exactly. And well, this is the lies we tell ourselves. See, we're basically, we lie to ourselves constantly when we tell ourselves negative things. For example, if we get in a situation where, you know, we did something, we're always struggling with something, you know, that we did. And then when we fail, we get upset with ourselves and beat ourselves up rather than to say to ourselves, well, you know, that was then. What can I do better next time? Because another opportunity will come and you can try to get it better next time. But you never give up on trying to succeed. It's just there is no, you know, failure is, first of all, your friends. You know, that's your best friend is failure because life is about failing. We're all failures. We fail our way, we uh, fail our success. That's how we learn, we achieve. You take a look at that from when a, a little baby and they just continually fall down on the ground until they learn how to walk. So they failure, they keep failing, but they keep getting back up until they walk. So why did that stop? How did that happen that all of a sudden we take failure to be Failure is like the ultimate, you know, sign that we're nothing or we're no good versus that 
you know, that's our teacher, our, our, that's our mentor. That's what's going to help us to achieve is the failure that we're in the process of, of achieving. And you can go, if you like, one of the things I like to do to help motivate myself is to see all the failures in the world who have who've succeeded. And you see, like, you know, people, you know, the famous stories of, you know, <laughs> people who were never told they couldn't dance. Was it Fred Astaire? You know, there's, uh, you know, what is it? The, uh, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln, right? He was a big failure. He became the president. Right. There's there's so many different. Oh, Dr. One of my favorites is Dr. Seuss. Right. Oh, of course. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. He's like 39 or something failures before he got published. <laughs> yeah. There, there's countless like history is absolutely um, full of them. Um, I feel like we're getting to so many nuggets of wisdom, Abraham, and that I absolutely need you on this podcast again. But we're kind of coming to the end of our time. So um, if you could just give a final sentence of, of sort of. <laughs> advice or hope, maybe even to your like 30 year old self, when you were at your darkest point, what would it be? Well, it was, I got that, uh, that, that, uh, you know, the message came in my head, you know, you just got to have the right information, you know, find that right information. If you don't know what it is, you know, go to someone you can trust that you see that with, that there's a life out there that you, that you feel is a really good life. You know, and just might ask them, you know, what, you know, what is your information? You know, what is it? What do you believe? Right. And like trust, trust your intuition and nurture your, your will and your imagination. Well, it's, it's beyond that. I can go on and that, but on a simplest level is that, yeah, first of all, really, you know, get in touch with your true desire. Yeah. And, And, you know, use your imagination to tell yourself the truth. Because we're lying to ourselves constantly. We're telling ourselves we're no good. We're telling ourselves that we can't do it. We're telling ourselves all these terrible lies. Start telling yourself you can do it. You will do it. You will succeed. You picture yourself in the situation that you want to be in. Use that imagination to tell yourself the truth. Because eventually you're going to start to believe yourself. You know, I said earlier, I said basically believe in yourself. You know, and then, you know... Believe that God believes in you. He created you, so he believes in you. If you don't believe in God, all right, well, that's okay. You know, just the point is, is believe in yourself. It's, and use that imagination to pick yourself up and put yourself into that position that you want to be in and never give up. Oh, I love that so much. Abraham, if people want to connect with you in any way, uh, sort of online, or where can they find you? Well, my email is... It, well, I don't want to give that one because that one, my last name. By the way, when I chose back the name, you know, I what's my last name mean, right? I pick because when you go get to pick your own name, yeah, you want to pick a good one, right? I think that's true. <laughs> so I, my last name means it's it's pronounced Venismach, and it means and we will be happy. Oh, so you know, if you're gonna pick yourself a name, pick a name that'll give you hope give you direction and determination because that's going to be the name that's going to begin your own dynasty that you're going to carry on from generation after generation. So that's what I did. Now, if people want to reach me, mm-hmm. they can reach me uh, on LinkedIn. You can see there's Abraham Benisma. Uh, you can, or, or Abraham, I use it, you know, in that one. Yeah. That's V E N I S M A C H. Or they can contact me at Abraham at, excuse me, 
Avraham, that's Abraham with a V, A-V-R-A-H-A-M, dot Venismach, that's V, like in Venice, E-N is a Nancy, I-S-M-A-C-H. So like Mach 5, Mach, dot <laughs> gmail.com. Anyway, you'll, you'll probably have it in your podcast and your show notes. We will. We'll like absolutely that. add it to, to the <laughs> show notes. Abraham, thank you so much for your, your nuggets of wisdom and your lifetime of stories and the, and the laughs. I feel like we went on a bit of a ride today. I appreciate it so much. Well, I'm gonna, I want to give everybody a gift. So before we go, I yeah. want everyone to go to the cxsuccesssummit.com. And what I've done, this is part of my journey, is uh, somehow I managed to get together over 200,000 customer service and uh, professionals on LinkedIn. And I've created a virtual summit, and I have probably 30, 25 to 30 experts around the world to tell you how to create excellent customer service. And as you heard from my story of my journey at Ideology, well, I'm here to share it with people, and you can go there and get a free pass and learn how to create an amazing experience. Remember the cobbler? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll never forget that story. It's going to impact my business from here on out. Well, you're gonna you go to the you, you go to the to the cxsuccesssummit.com over there, and you're gonna see I've arranged people from and these some of these people, they make twenty five thirty thousand dollars a speech, and I have they all came to me and they're they're graciously have agreed to be interviewed, their video interviews. Everyone gets to be able to watch all those interviews, and this will help you to rock your business. And if you're interested too, people are interested in becoming a consultant. You can see, because I've asked them, how did they become get to where they are? How, how did they get started? So people can that would like to use their expertise to see how these people started from their own humble starts or by some circumstance to show that they can do it too. So there's a lot of opportunity for people out there to, to really to find something for themselves that they can really, really go out there. And, and like I say, the mission is, is to make the world a pleasure to do business with. I love it. And on that note, we will end. Thank you so much, Abraham, for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If something helped you today, please do share this episode with a friend and let them know that they are not alone. I know that for me, isolation kept me stuck much longer than I needed to be. So let's practice courage and talk to someone about what's going on, as that's the first step to making life amazing. Check out my website, petravelsboer.com, for your free Kickstarter plan, which will teach you to turn your biggest weaknesses into your greatest strengths. Join the community of people who are changing the way they view life's challenges and living life to the full. Until next time, goodbye.